This program is brought to you by Pussy Magnets. Put a binge on your friend with a Pussy Magnet. Oh, hey. Welcome, 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 my lovely lumps. Or should I say lovely labs? I don't know. They're both good. <laughs> I'm so thrilled to have you here in the Labia Lounge to yarn about all things sexuality, womanhood, holistic health, and everything in between. Your legs. <laughs> oh, cringe. I couldn't help myself. Anyway, I am your host, Freya Graff, and I am a holistic sex coach and educator and yoni mapping therapist. So basically, I make my living massaging vaginas and teaching people about sex. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> so as you can imagine, we are going to have vag loads of real chats with real people about real shit. So buckle up, you're about to receive the sex ed that you'd never had and have a bloody good laugh while you're at it. Before we get stuck in though, I would like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording this podcast, the Manang people. It's an absolute privilege to be living and creating dope podcast content on Noongar country, and I pay respect to their elders past, present, and emerging. Now, if y'all are ready, let's flap and do this. <laughs> Oh, is there such thing as having too many vagina jokes in the one intro? Whatever. I'm leaving it in. It's my podcast. Don't panic, you're not broken. Your sex education was a piece of shit. Get your flaps out and pull the couch. It's the Lavia Lounge. Hello, my beauties. I've got a really special guest for you today. I'm so excited to have Joanna in the Labia Lounge. And Joanna is a registered Chinese medicine practitioner in Melbourne who became interested in complementary healthcare after realizing that a lot of the time the conventional medical approach to treating illness was just masking symptoms and never getting to the actual cause of the problem. So, Joanna returned to university to study to become a naturopath and then by accident stumbled onto Chinese medicine and it was there that she felt she'd found the answers she'd been looking for. Joanna believes that good health gives you freedom to live the life you want and to experience as much happiness as you can along the way and she's dedicated to helping people find lasting solu solutions to their health challenges. She's also a mother of two little girls, lives for food, music and hula hooping and owns far too many books. I can totally relate to that. Oh my God, my stack is so high. Um, so I'm really thrilled because I'm going to chat with Joanna today about a whole bunch of things, including vaginal health and UTIs and thrush, um, BV, things like that. And I'm hoping to get her back on for another episode that's focused around period pain and PMS and things like that. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So firstly, welcome, Joanna. Thank you for having me in the Labia Lounge. Um, so do you go by Joe at all or is it Joanna? By default, yeah. And it's it's quicker. So we're both busy. 
<laughs> you could call me Joe. It's you, you know what you know what Australians are like. If it's long, they'll make mm-hmm. it short, and if it's short, they'll add they'll add letters to it to make it longer. So, totally. yes, I do. I'm- I do not answer to Joanne though, and that gets me in trouble because people think that I'm being rude or being precious because it's sort of like my name, but it's actually, you might as well be calling me like Frank because it's not my name. So when I used to work in an office, that got me in trouble a couple of times. People would be like, Joanne, Joanne, Joanne. (laughs) I wasn't turning around. And then when I realised it was me, I'd say, are you talking to me? I've been saying your name, haven't I? Well, not really. You've been saying a name that sounds like mine, but it's different. (laughs) So (laughs) Joe is fine. All right, cool. Just just checking. I'm definitely one of those people that shortens and gives nicknames and lengthens and does all the things, but I'm trying to be a little bit more consensual about that and check in with people before I just start calling them something when I've I've never even met you in person, so <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Although, I don't know. Are we are we too precious these days? Maybe we are. Maybe yeah, everyone should I mean, call me Joanne. <laughs> Maybe I'm really precious and everyone should start calling me Joanne. <laughs> no, I think it's fine. I've known I've known people that are far more precious about that sort of thing and wouldn't wouldn't allow the shortening to to Joe in the first place. So I think, you know, Joanne's not your name. Fuck it's an that interesting off. story though, because I used to when I was younger, I used to introduce myself as Joe. And then it did occur to me once that it's not my name. So I started, in, and you know, like your parents think your name through. Well, I think most parents do. Uh, so I realized that my, you know, my name is actually Joanna. So I will introduce myself as Joanna, but then, yes, invariably it gets shortened to Joe. And I have a family nickname. So anyone who is, anyone who's in my family or anyone who's a really close friend will call me Jogs or Jogsy. So oh. that's. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I think I'd probably be uh, yeah, prone so. to calling you Jojo at some point, which you would probably hate, but um, I get no, it's happened. Free sometimes. It's happened. Yeah. Do you? That's brilliant. That's cute. <laughs> All right, we're free and Jojo, but uh, we better crack on with some vaginal health stuff, hey? Definitely. All right. So um, first things first, I just would love to know what some of the most common things are, you know, re- related to vaginal health concerns that women come to you for help with. Interestingly, I think uh, it's a surprise usually to a lot of people to learn that BV or bacterial vaginosis is actually more common than candida or thrush, a yeast infection. Mm. Uh, so that's one that normally surprises people. A lot of people, any anything kind of going on in the vaginal area uh, to do with the vagina or the vulva, a lot of people kind of jump to the conclusion that it must be a yeast infection, but mm. actually BV is more common, yeah. And that can present a little, it can presents differently from uh, a yeast infection, but BV can present differently from person to person as well. So, but they're kind of two of the more common ones that you'll see in clinic because things that anytime someone comes with uh, a concern in that area, you need to do uh, a proper health history and make sure we're ruling out things that are a little bit uh, more significant or that require medical treatment and intervention, you know, sexually transmitted infections being the one because those untreated can lead to more serious outcomes like Im- impact to fertility, uh, pelvic inflammatory disease, which, yes, ultimately can wind up with um, impacts to fertility. And then, of course, if you do have a, an active infection, you run the risk of transmitting it to other people as well. So that's something that you need to really make sure you investigate thoroughly first. Uh, mm. And then with those things ruled out, then we kind of come back and look at, all right, so what's, what's driving this, this, uh, this picture at the moment? 
Mm, yeah, that's so interesting because I think I also pretty much assumed that thrush would be one of the most common ones, but I think it's sort of more just that it's it's well known and people automatically assume, often I think thrush is misdiagnosed and it might be BV or it might be something else, but people kind of automatically just jump to like, oh, it must be thrush because it's this familiar kind of, I guess, more well-known um, infection. And and then of course there's that whole sort of vicious cycle where you can you can get into this loop of like getting thrush then BV then thrush then BV and they sometimes can crop up you know going hand in hand and people will be having a bit of a battle with both of them. So do you see that much? That definitely can happen, and that really kind of speaks to the level of dysbiosis going on uh, in the individual. But yeah, they 100% you can see saw between the two. So, and that's the whole thing with Chinese medicine, right? Is that, uh, you, you're trying to find and strike homeostasis or balance within that individual. And we're always kind of moving and in a state of flux between, um, yin and yang when it comes to Chinese medicine, it's a really simple way of explaining it all, uh, different yeah. things fall under those categories of yin and yang, but it's the, the interplay of the two forces within the body is really what underpins Chinese medicine. And so if um, you're trying to strike balance within an organ system uh, or a system of the body, like the, like the vagina, you can find that, yes, it can swing uh, to both extremes before you actually can strike that balance in the middle. But mm. yeah, thrush is not uncommon. <laughs> you know, it's definitely not uncommon, but uh, BV is the more common one. The three, kind of like the three ones that they teach you, if you're seeing anything going on in the vagina, the most common ones that uh, you're going to be dealing with are yeast infections, so candida, BV, or trichomoniasis, which is a sexually transmitted infection, which is caused by a protozoa. And it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. So mm. any kind of itching, pain, or dramas, you know, they're the three most common. They're not the only ones, but that's what they sort of teach is that when you're in clinic, if you've got someone in front of you, they're kind of the first three that you'll investigate. And then uh, if not one of those, then you go looking further. Well, I haven't actually heard of that third one you said. Did you say protozoa or how did you say that? Yeah, it's a it's a protozoa. So it has a, it's a little, it's a microbe and it has a tail on it that um, flicks mm. and the tail causes extreme irritation and itching. And there's also a uh, frothy, quite a characteristic frothy green discharge from the vagina mm, and wow. a really strong odour of mm. um, fish. And mm-hmm. that you can also get that in BV. You know, that's sometimes mm. one of the only symptoms of BV is that there'll be a fishy odour. It can be really mild or it can be mm. quite strong. It can be at different times of the month. It can be after sex. It can be the next morning after sex. But with trick, you'll get, yes, the discharge and it's it's very uncomfortable. They say in the medical textbooks, they say the the vulva takes on a strawberry red appearance. So it's very oh my inflammatory. God, that sounds horrific. And because mm. I, I like picked mm. out, you know, that sort of painful, itchy, irritable um symptom and then also like the fishy smell like that's kind of like a little bit like thrush a little bit like bv do people often think that they've got one or the other when it's in fact that uh if you have trick you're usually at a doctor's office like <laughs> it's it's unpleasant yeah so i think it may that in the early stages they might think oh maybe i'm getting a yeast infection but yeah before mm-hmm. too long they will be fronting up for some antibiotics mm. yeah yeah, wow. All right. I mean, it's never, it's never pleasant. It's such a, 
It's such a disempowering and yeah, pretty mortifying thing having something going going amiss with your vagina. I just feel like it kind of hits you right where it hurts because yeah, you're you're kind of constantly aware of this thing that no one else can see but that you can feel and you're concerned about either the smell or you're really itchy or it's painful and sex as a whole, you know, it's just a fucking nightmare. Like I had a really, really rough time for a few years. It was probably maybe three or four years even um, oh, in my sort of early to mid-20s where I was going around that loop of like BB thrush, BB thrush. And in the end, it was mostly the thrush that I just couldn't kick. Um, and it was awful. It was just such a nightmare. It in, it in, impacted my sex life and my confidence and my um, my like connection to my body because I just felt like I was, um, yeah, I was pitted against my body and I was frustrated with it all the time and feeling like we were kind of at war in a way rather than working together because I was just constantly trying to like get on top of this thing or figure it out and listen to my body, but then also just would get so exhausted and frustrated and disheartened that, you know, I'd just pop the thrush tablets and whatever. And yeah, I really feel for people who are in that that cycle and I know how yeah, completely debilitating and just horrible it can be. And yeah, disheartening. You just start to lose hope after it's been such a long time. And I just found like doctors and, you know, GPs and stuff weren't weren't particularly helpful and then ended up getting a naturopath and a nutritional medicine doctor on side. I did some Chinese medicine stuff. And yeah, it took quite a few years actually of like real gut rehabilitation to sort of get in the clear again. Um, thank God. But, um, I was wondering if you'd had any sort of personal journey of your own with vaginal health that's sort of made you want to specialize in this area and made you more passionate about this stuff. Yes. <laughs> and I think that's really common for people when they have an area that they're really passionate about. It's because they have personal experience. So for me, I um, had a stint of recurrent UTIs and I just could not shake them. I was getting like one a month and I was mm. trying to deal with them, you know, na- air quotes naturally. And more often than not would have to take antibiotics. Like it just, um, I just wasn't making mm. any headway and then, you know, would relapse a month later. And mm. it was really devastating. And that's what actually sent me down the path of learning about the role that the microbiome within the vagina plays and we can't we kind of jumped ahead a little bit because um you know a lot of the listeners will probably be familiar with the idea that you have a gut microbiome because that's had a lot of press lately but actually you have uh microbiomes everywhere and in the vagina you have a microbiome which is a bacterial colony a microbiome and a virobiome so a fungal and viral colony as well so it's this massive teeming living uh ecosystem within within the vagina And if that gets out of balance for various different reasons, then what you find is that it can sort of set the stage for recurrent relapsing infections, whether it's UTIs, whether it's, um, you know, thrush or BV, it's, it, it, it can really be driving, um, those issues. So what you were saying before about how there's the kind of, psychological impact i think there's two points to be made there one is when you're talking about sexually transmitted infections we're still i think we're doing a lot to like break taboo topics and make things a little bit more normalized 
And I remember watching a little video that you put on your Instagram actually about the morning after pill. And you were saying how it was still in 2021, a really awkward experience for someone to actually go and and ask for it. And you were like, can we just accept that women are just people who sometimes get jizz inside them occasionally when it's not really an ideal time for that to happen? And can we just drop, you know, the stigmatizing of someone needing to go Mm -hmm. and seek the plan B pill or the morning after pill. And I think to a degree, uh, you know, we still have that with sexually transmitted infections. It's um, mm-hmm. if you had tonsillitis, right, you wouldn't try and hide that or you wouldn't feel ashamed of the fact that you have tonsillitis. <laughs> so whilst we may not lead conversations with, uh, how are you today? Well, actually, I have a really itchy badge. Um, <laughs> you know, realizing that human beings are prone to infection and it can happen uh, we can get genital infections and it's it's not something that should make you feel like a bad person. And then the second part um, that we were talk- that you were talking about is the negative impact that recurrent thrush and BV can have on women psychologically or people mm. psychologically. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, BV, that's one of the major side effects is that it is very, very psychologically damaging because of everything that you were talking about. There's a lot of self-consciousness. Mm. Sex is perhaps not as enjoyable, uh, you know, so uh, and sex can be a trigger, can be a triggering event for these things, mm-hmm. which can yeah. then go on to, to lead to like personal physical suffering. So then you start to associate sex with or sex triggers like anxiety, uh, which is not really how you want to be going in to your sexual encounters is trying to push anxiety to the back of your mind. So, um, yes, I think that there, there is a massive psychological impact of these, of these issues. Now, had we spoken, uh, before our internet dropped out, we we're talking a little bit about the microbiome. Did I talk about that? No, well, that was my next question. I was going to go into some of the sort of major causes or like risk factors with these sort of infections. And they, a lot, you know, they all pretty much like UTIs and thrush and BV, it, it pretty much, as far as I know, through my own research comes back to, yeah, the microbiome, the vaginal microbiome, like you were just starting to dip into a bit about that. So I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, so I was saying that most people are aware that we have a gut microbiome because that's Mm -hmm. been uh, getting a lot of press (laughs) lately. (laughs) And we have actually entire, you know, our whole body is a microbial colony that (laughs) there is more bugs on your body than there are your own cells. Like they outnumber your own body cells 10 (laughs) to 1. Most of your DNA is microbial DNA. So, you know, from a Chinese medicine point of view, that's almost a perfect depiction of this idea of the, you know, the macrocosm within the microcosm. So you are this little tiny being on this spinning rock hurtling through space in a galaxy that's one of hundreds of galaxies in this massive expansive universe. And you yourself (laughs) are a universe because on you there are all these tiny little micro we kind of mimic things around this but the vaginal microbiome is a relatively new area of research uh where our understanding is growing all the time but yes what we're definitely seeing is that when this environment gets disrupted just like you can have an imbalance in your gut microbes and they tend to talk in terms of good and bad bacteria but that's a bit of a misnomer because Mm. the bacteria is meant to be there it's just that it will be there in quantities that is 
favorable for health or favorable for a symptomatic picture. So just because we'll take Gardnerella because it's perhaps one of the most um, well-known ones, but just because you have levels of Gardnerella in the vagina that are high enough that they're creating symptoms, it doesn't mean, oh, we need to get rid of all the Gardnerella. It's meant to be there, but it's just that it exists in harmony with other bacterial species, mainly the lactobacilli um, strain species they kind of dictate more favourable vaginal environments. And so they keep the others in balance. But it's not that they're bad bacteria, it's just that the levels are out of out of balance for a healthy environment. Mm. And then if you're looking at, you know, yeast infections, you said that you had one that just it would keep coming back and keep coming back. Do you, did you ever get uh, swabbed to find out if it was Candida albicans or Candida glabrata? Oh, no, I didn't even know it was an option to have like the, I mean, I got swabs just so, to and tell me if it was yeah. thrush, but yeah, you know, GPs are pretty hopeless with that sort of stuff and they definitely don't involve you in the process by saying, oh, it's this strain or should I check whether it's, you know, a specific, yeah, no, I I didn't have any info like that. Yeah, so what we usually find is that Candida albicans is the one that is responsible for kind of the acute short-lived I just took antibiotics and now I have a yeast infection a vaginal yeast mm. infection and they're they're the uh, that's the strain that is quite responsive to the over-the-counter um uh, azole group the antifungals that mm. you get just at the chemist whereas candida glabrata is responsible more often for the chronic yeast infections that won't shift and glabrata mm. does not respond uh in the same way to the over-the-counter uh, antifungals so that can be one of the issues in recurrent yeast infections is that you're treating mm. for a different strain yeah not the one that's actually wow. causing the problems Wow. Yeah. So that can be a contributing factor as well. Yeah. And then of course we have, you know, all of the, all of the diet and lifestyle um, factors that play into a healthy, healthy body and healthy microbes. Mm, Yeah. And there's just so many factors, you know, once I started diving into my own sort of healing and research, I was pretty overwhelmed by just how many things could contribute to yeah to a sort of imbalanced biome and then also like you know stuff that wasn't as obvious you'd think maybe it would be food related and you know take some probiotics or whatever but then of course stress you know or medications or like hormonal contraception there's just so stress and smoking are actually two of the most uh, common drivers of BV, <laughs> but stress mm-hmm. is a huge one. And of course, then you get in this self-fulfilling cycle, which is what you were touching on earlier that, uh, you know, stress is a big one to create the environment for the BV to present. And then the BV itself is a source of stress. So it can be yeah, a little bit of a vicious cycle. Um, totally. Yes. Yeah. And I even found like the, that exact sort of cycle of like stress and anxiety then turning into itself would happen around sex for me. Like, you know, I would be worried about pain. And so my vagina would contract in preparation for that pain with penetration. So even once I'd cleared up all of the infections and the things that were actually causing the pain with sex initially, I still had, it wasn't quite like vaginismus or anything, but I would have this kind of 
yeah, pain cycle going on and this this automatic contraction and clamming up literally when when sort of moving towards penetration because then my body just associated penetration with pain even once the source of it was gone. So I kind of had to yeah, get out of that loop and it's it's a similar thing with like the stress. And yeah, that it's almost like a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy circuit that you get wrapped up in. Um, but I'd love to hear yeah. you sort of said smoking and stress. What are some other main risk factors or things that contribute to to BV? So with BV, uh, stress and smoking are uh, definitely, definitely two that are right up there. And then um, interestingly enough, <laughs> I sound like a high school health teacher, but unprotected sex because yeah. there is also, you know, there is a vaginal microbiome, so it's not much of a surprise to discover that there is also a penile microbiome. And that's why mm-hmm. a lot of people who have experienced BV in the past, they get on top of it, it's totally fine, uh, and then they finish a, a long-term relationship and they have a new sexual partner and boom, lo and behold, back it comes. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the, you know, you've got these two universes, microbial universes that are colliding in the act of intercourse and when you have penetrative sex. So if, um, you know, you're having sex with different partners, then using condoms or barrier methods is really important to kind of prevent BV from occurring because that's stopping that microbial um, interplay. And if mm-hmm. the environment is not stable, it's going to be more susceptible to shifts. So we mm-hmm. actually, you know, we become more homogenous with our partners over time, you know. So when you're in a monogamous relationship and you're just having sex with the one person, then your um, microbiome and their microbiome will start to kind of homogenize. They become more similar. So that's why mm-hmm. people in longer-term monogamous relationships don't see the flares that perhaps someone who is um, having sex with different partners does. Mm. Interestingly, it's uh, quite, it's more prevalent in women who have sex with women and they're not 100% Mm. sure why. But, again, so using barriers like dental dams can be important uh, if you're having different sexual partners as well. But, yeah, women who have sex with women, they tend to see higher instances. It can be swapped back and forth. Between partners. So sometimes yeah. it is necessary to, yeah. So even if you're in a monogamous relationship, sometimes while you're trying to reestablish that environment, it's useful to introduce barrier methods. Um, and the other thing is to, <laughs> kills me to say it, but abstain from oral sex for a little while <laughs> because there's a lot going on in the oral, the oral microbiome as well. So, mm. um, oral to, to vaginal sex can be quite disruptive. So if you're trying to reestablish an area, just avoiding those things. Um, anything that disrupts the microbial environment, so sex toys, lubricants, uh, soaps, fragrances, which we ought not be putting on vulvas and vaginas. <laughs> they definitely don't benefit from uh, washing or douching. It can be a little bit of an issue because people who are suffering from a vaginal dysbiosis and a BV often feel a lot better after they douche because they mm. feel cleaner, the smell uh, uh, reduces, and so they're less self-conscious, so they feel better, but actually it can be creating disruption in the environment so it's definitely um like a kind of chicken and egg scenario there and Mm. uh even for some people 
menstrual cups and tampons because some of these bacteria thrive in an iron-rich environment. And so if you're using a menstrual cup, which are fabulous and I love them, but they're just nothing's for everybody, right? So for mm-hmm. some people, you've got uh, the menstrual bloods being held within the vagina, creating this fabulously iron-rich environment, which really suits some of these microbes. And then you've got the cup itself, which could be a potential source of disruption if it's been washed with something and not completely rinsed or if it hasn't been boiled to be um disinfected is that the right word sterilized is what i'm looking for so yeah anything basically anything that has the potential to disrupt the vaginal environment can shift it for people and prior sexually transmitted infections as well because they can really disrupt the environment so Mm. once it's disordered you absolutely can return it to order but uh, you may depending on the level of disruption or the number of disrupting events you may find that over time it's just not as stable an environment Mm, yeah yeah and that's what I found I think I had you know a run of having to take antibiotics before I kind of realized how damaging they could be to your microbiome and then I was I thought I was doing all the right things in some ways like I you know make all my own skincare and I use vegetable-based pH balanced sort of like Castile soap and I don't put any products on my body you know that I wouldn't put in my body and and then at the same time now I'm looking back going oh my fucking god I had like the implant on it and so I was on hormonal birth control and then on top of that, that meant that I wasn't using condoms and I was in my like ho phase. So I was like doing the poly thing, like having sex with heaps of different partners. And so of course my biome was just totally like rocked all the time. And it got to the point where um, it was interesting you were saying about oral because I actually noticed that like it would always flare up after oral and in particular um, I would get thrush after you know maybe a partner had been drinking beer that night and then if he went down on me I don't know if this is like an urban myth but I swear it used to happen every time I would get a yeast infection because of like that yeasty beer or maybe it was just because of his bacteria certain people used to really flare me up more it's like my body did not gel with certain people's bacteria um, but yeah, so yeah, and I often I back. often wonder if that's kind of like a, a a good sign sometimes about you know whether you mm. are a good fit with someone like the body yeah. the body knows. But yeah, I mean yeah. the the vaginal environment is acidic. It's quite acidic. It's around um, I want to say three point five around there. And uh, if if it shifts towards a more alkaline environment, then that also provides an opportunity for um, microbes, less friendly microbes mm. to proliferate. So semen is alkaline. And so if you're having ejaculative sex, with sex where people get jizz inside them, to quote you, uh, then that can shift the vaginal environment from its naturally acidic mm. environment to a more alkaline environment as well. So, yeah, that's definitely yeah. definitely a possibility. Um, but, you know, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have wonderful free and liberal sex if that's what floats our boat. It's just that if uh, there are certain precautions. And I think, you know, I think it's it's worthwhile using barrier methods. And as you say, the hormonal uh, contraceptives can lull people into a slightly false sense of security because mm. they are very good at preventing pregnancy. But pregnancy is not the only thing to consider, um, mm-hmm. you know, as as we were talking about now, that it can, that can sort of set you up for a little bit of instability, but also not, you know, some people, some people get away with it. And then within, (laughs) within the, um, the vaginal microbiome sort of space, they've divided, um, 
the profiles that they tend to see most commonly into community subtypes. And there's like subtypes one, two, three, four, four. I think there's five. I feel like there's five, but they're not numbered one to five. They're numbered in a in an interesting way. I think it's like four A <laughs> and four B or something. But what that it is the, the point that I'm trying to get to is that not there's not one picture of a healthy vagina. Oh look, this is a healthy vagina for everybody. No. There are different levels of different microbes that um, can still be considered a healthy state. By and large, the lactobacilli dominant uh, profile is the one that seems to be associated with health outcomes. And interestingly enough, it, the subtypes can kind of be categorized with, uh, with between different ethnicities. So Caucasian yeah. women tend to have like subtype one. Yeah. And then you've got um, Asian women and then African women who they are sort of closer to states that could potentially be considered disordered and that's mm. just their natural state. So there is some debate about, well, if it's asymptomatic in these individuals, is it then considered a healthy state? And we sort of think yes until such time as it's not. But there are certain people who are closer to the line of being able to be uh, to have that environment disordered more easily. And it's interesting that it, um, yeah, it's it's different between women and then it's different between ethnicities. And, yeah, so I don't want anyone to get this idea that there's just one one healthy state of vaginal microbiome and that's it. That's mm-hmm. not the case. We're all a little bit different, but it's what is healthy for the individual. And that's where, you know, mm-hmm. treatment will kind of, there are basic mainstays of treatment, but then it varies from person to person as well. So mm-hmm. it's yeah. very interesting. Very interesting. It's so very interesting. emergent area of research. Yeah, I remember coming across a bunch of studies around, yeah, saying exactly that, like, because initially I think they'd thought that a very diverse, you know, community inside the vagina was going to be dysbiotic and was was more, like, correlated with, you know, BV and things like that. And then, yeah, in different ethnicities, they discovered really diverse ones that were also totally healthy and and weren't dysbiotic. So, and I was just like, oh my God, this is so, it's just getting trickier and trickier to even pin down. I guess it's really cool that it's so unique. It is true though, that you want um, lower diversity in the vagina, Mm. not not no diversity, and that's sort of what I was saying before about how these air quotes bad bacteria are actually meant to be there. Mm. But in the gut, it's like more the merrier, you know, diverse microbiome, gut health, fantastic. Whereas in the vagina, you do want a more homogenous environment. You want lower mm. diversity in that area. But as as you were saying, that what does that mean between individuals? Um, you know, some, one person's low diversity. And you can also have uh, a condition that can arise if you have too much of the friendly one, <laughs> the friendly vector. Yeah. Lact- so lactobacilli crispatus, yeah, is meant to be like the king hitter for healthy vaginal microbiome. But if you have too much of that and not enough of the air quotes, bad ones to balance it out, then that can actually create a condition as well, so, which is, you know, mm. <laughs> which ironically seems like the others. So it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting area of, mm. <laughs> of practice. Mm, oh my gosh yeah I went down so many rabbit holes um of research with this so it's really I'm nerding out talking to you and I want to I want to chat about treatments and things next but I just wanted to a little thought occurred to me around um 
yeah, you were sort of talking about when someone comes inside you, that's alkaline and that can sort of throw your balance. And so if you're having someone ejaculate inside you frequently or, you know, multiple times in one session, then that can really like bring your pH um, to sort of out of balance. And so, and I realized I'd actually started, um, I guess like even even now I I manage that because I am aware that especially at different stages in my cycle, my pH is just a little bit more alkaline, like when I'm ovulating and when I'm about to bleed. And I can even notice it sometimes getting a bit irritable or starting to itch. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm I'm on the edge. If I if I do anything like, you know, to tip the balance anymore, then I'm at risk of getting thrush or getting BB again. And so I'm I'm really careful about what I put into my vagina. We practice ejaculatory control so my partner doesn't always ejaculate inside me. It's like a really conscious decision that we choose to do um, when both of us want to. So when I know that my, my vagina is a bit more vulnerable um, or if I know that I've already had you know, things that it would have disrupted, like if he's already come inside me <laughs> once in the in that like time period, then I'll avoid it so that I'm not like pushing it too much. Cause I think now I'm just extra cautious because I have had so many um issues with my Yoni in the past. Um but yeah that sort of leads me to ask about treatment. So I used to just take the over the counter pill for thrush a lot because I was so fed up and I just nothing else seemed to do it. Um and then also I've just smashed like crazy crazy amounts of probiotics in every shape and form. I get ones shipped over from the US. I I've spent thousands upon thousands of dollars on um probiotics and gut powders and this and that. Um so I'd love to hear like when someone comes to you for and obviously BV is different to thrush and then we've still got to talk about UTIs, but what what uh, approach do you take with treatment and what do you think about the conventional treatments that you know the doctor would probably give someone? Big question. So I'll break that question. Yeah, I'll break it down into parts. So I think yeah. um, we can very briefly just say that UTIs, we used to think it was a case of the <laughs> the rectum and the urethra are really close in women. And because of various different things that occur in a woman's life or the life of someone who is in possession of a, a vagina is that they're either wiping back to front or they're having sex and that's causing, um, you know, translocation of bacteria that live normally in the rectum and putting that in into the, into the bladder environment. And that's certainly potentially one way that a UTI can be triggered. But if you're getting recurrent UTIs, then it's, it's really interesting to look to the state of the vaginal microbiome. And mm. they're coming up with this, uh, these, this is a whole podcast in and of itself. So I'm just going to touch on it here, but you can actually get um, embedded infections where the, <laughs> because you've had so many repeated infections, the microbe, it's most commonly E. coli, but you definitely can get UTIs that are caused uh, from other bacteria. But with E. coli, what can actually happen is over time, it can merge with the cells in your body, the host cell. So the body is, the cells are screaming out to the immune system, help me, I'm in trouble. And your body sends in like the immune the immune fighters. And it's like, what are you talking about, guys? There's only host cells here. I can't find a thing. And it's because over time, this infection is actually embedded with your own body. Uh, You can have, yeah, I know it's crazy. And we used to think as well that bacteria were kind of dumb and didn't know when they were under attack 
from antibiotic agents, and that's totally not the case. These guys have communities. They have what's called quorum sensing, which is they'll get together in groups and then they can talk to the oh other God. groups around the body. <laughs> yeah, they know when they're under attack, so they will they can uh, congregate together. And if the way I always describe it is if you've seen that show Vikings, mm-hmm. and you know how the, the Vikings get together and they go, shield wall, and they all huddle together and put the shields up and then the arrows <laughs> bounce off. Oh That's basically what the bacteria can do. They get together and they start to secrete uh, like this oozy substance called a biofilm, which then protects them from attack by the anti- antimicrobial agents, the antibiotics. So you could be taking, and some days they only prescribe like three days of trimethoprim, which is a an antibiotic, um, which is good for urinary tract infection. And, you know, for three days, they'll sort of mount this little defense. And then you stop taking the antibiotics. Uh, they the environment becomes hospitable for them again and out they come. And that's another trigger. You also can have a situation where you've got um, microbes in the vagina, typically Gardnerella, that after sex, they kind of can ascend the urethra and then they cause cells in the bladder wall to fall away. And then the E. coli that's, that's in the bladder can get out and mobilize. And then you get this infection, which they, you know, is blamed on E. coli because it's he's the one holding the smoking gun because the gardnerella is actually transient. It's come in and then it's gone out. So it's a really fascinating uh, area and one that I really enjoy working with because anyone who has ever experienced recurrent UTIs knows it's just, it's hell on earth. Um, mm. So that's UTIs. And then you were talking about treatment and what I think of conventional treatment. So mm. again, speaking of hell on earth, anyone that's ever had a really, really bad yeast infection <laughs> who wants to tear their labia off, they will also, they will also say that it's, uh, it's very, very unpleasant. So I think that when you're dealing with a situation, if you're really acutely in pain, I don't see anything wrong with a pharmaceutical intervention to get on top of it so that you're not in pain. But if you're having to go back every other week uh, to keep, you know, and you're in this seesaw cycle of antibiotics for BV and then um, over-the-counter antivungals for thrush and it's just this seesaw in between, then that's not a long-term solution. So Mm -hmm. if you're really suffering from a really itchy, horrible yeast infection, uh, then there's nothing wrong with a quick relief. If you don't have anything else available to you, nip down to the chemist, grab your antifungal cream or whatever whatever system you use to deliver it. But then after that, if it's recurrent, we need to look at why is this occurring. Mm. And so in the situation of a recurrent yeast infection, what strain are we dealing with? You know, it's good to know if you can um, so that you can, it may just be that you need to use a different antifungal and then it's one and done. Um, and then thrush likes a high estrogen environment. So looking at hormonal balance is really, really important. If you've got kind of um, flares Mm. at different times of the month as well, that will indicate that there is a hormonal driver behind it. Uh, High glucose states as well. So sometimes, as you were saying, medication and diabetes can, can set the stage for it as well. So looking at what is actually driving it in the individual and then what can we control for in that person? Is it a dietary change? Is it a change of treatment? Is it intervention at trigger times of the month? So if you were doing vaginal pH testing for BV, for example, and you saw a shift towards a more alkaline state at certain times of the month and that was predictable, then 
prior to those times when you're going to be more vulnerable, you can actually use an intervention. Um, and over time, you're sort of heading it off at the pass enough that you restabilize the environment. So you can do that mm-hmm. as well for um, for yeast infections. So if there are times of the month where you're more prone to developing a yeast infection, using an intervention. Um, and I'm a big one uh, on not self-prescribing <laughs> because <laughs> it can be disastrous. There was I, another story that I tell is of a colleague of mine who was talking about a client who used a boric acid capsule and then apple cider vinegar at the same time. So basically set up for chemical reaction. I know. So for people who don't know chemically what what would have occurred then, if you've ever seen little kids and they do like a baking soda volcano (laughs) where they get bicarb and they put vinegar and it fizzes and goes everywhere, that's effectively what happened in this poor person's vagina. So uh, it would have neutralized very quickly. So it just gave her a massive fright. But, um, and I think she was, you know, there was a little bit of, um, of tissue, tissue inflammation as well. But it's really important that you are under the care of someone who can kind of guide you. But all the things that you talked about, looking at what's the state of, of the gut, can that be treated with diet? Uh, do we need to use some targeted probiotics? Um, is the individual going to be able to use, I said that douching is not great and I stand by Mm. that comment, but vaginal irrigation, on the other hand, is where you introduce small amounts of um, therapeutics into the vaginal environment. And that could be an apple cider vinegar dilution. It could be a green tea dilution uh, and vaginal probiotics as well. So there are different um, interventions that can be used, but they really do need to kind of be targeted to what's going on with the individual. Mm, yeah, cool. Um, I've definitely had some pretty interesting ingredients in pessary form shoved up my vag and lots of vaginal probiotics as well, because, um, you know, as you know, all probiotics aren't created equally. And then the actual strains that you need for your vagina specifically are different to, you know, the ones people might take for like travel sickness or gut health or whatever. So um, did you, it's a big topic, but did you want to touch briefly on some of the kinds of probiotics that are best for vaginal health specifically? The two um, that are sort of commonly spoken about are ruteri and rhamnosus, and you'll find them in a lot of uh, women's health formulas. And that's because they help facilitate uh, the growth and development of the probiotic, the probiotics, the microbes that constitute a healthy vaginal environment. The big one is Lactobacilli crispatus. Um, that's again associated with most favorable when that's dominant, that tends to be a, a healthy vaginal environment. But, um, I was talking before about a condition that can occur when you have too much crispatus and the name escaped me, but it came back to me. Uh, cytolytic vaginosis is the name of that mm-hmm. condition. So again, it's, it's not sort of as simple as take this one and you'll be okay, because it really depends on what's going on in the individual, but, Ruteri and Rhamnosus are the two. There's a Blackmore's product here in Australia, a um, women's probiotic, and that can be a really good general purpose one for people. But I would always recommend that uh, people work with someone who can help guide them because, yeah, it can be yeah. it can be a little bit more complicated than that. Mm. Um, and the other thing I want to say is people 
obsessed with coconut oil. <laughs> so I hear about people making their own pessaries and, you know, coconut oil is sort of seen to be this fabulous um, substance and it is, it definitely mm. is, but it is really antimicrobial. Yeah. So mm. putting it inside the vagina, it can have dire consequences. So just lay off the coconut oil, uh, mm. olive oil, emu oil. They're two um, really good substitutes. Cacao butter. Coconut oil. <laughs> mm. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, but just be wary of the coconut oil. It doesn't mean none ever. Like I hear a lot of people are using coconut oil as a lubricant and I'm like, mm, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Lubricant mm. is another one you were asking about triggers. Mm-hmm. Lubricant and the osmolality of lubricants, mm. that's, yeah. that's a big one as well because, yeah, there's a fabulous article. It's a Smitten Kitten article all about choosing the right lubricant. I'll um, let you link to that in the show notes because yeah, that's a really fabulous. interesting read for yeah, great, great. I make my own lube um, called Motion Lotion and did a lot of um, sort of diving <laughs> into good. osmolality and things like that because no one fucking knows about it. No one's heard about it. And yet most Ew. of the lubes you get on the shelves are horrific in terms of that, but then also yes. like a lot of them have glycerin, so it's just feeding your bacteria sugar and, you know, totally setting the stage for thrush and oh my god there's so many it's we need to do so many more podcasts I'm getting there's millions (laughs) of questions and things I want to chat about but um I just want to quickly shoehorn in a little segment because I haven't even done either of my segments yet but um get pregnant and die don't have sex because you will get pregnant and don't have sex in the missionary position. Don't have, don't have sex standing up. Just don't do it. Promise? It's time. It's time for this fun little segment where I ask you for a story or an example of how your sex education totally fucking failed you. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> I, do you know, I actually, I'm old and I had to cast my mind back. I'm not old, but school was a while ago. I have, my 20 year high school reunion has been and gone. Let's put it that way. Um, and I was thinking about what was I even taught in school? And I realized that I don't think we ever discussed sex in the context of something that you wanted to do and Mm. something that was pleasurable. (laughs) Yeah. So I think there was no discussion and I can understand why in a school environment you could have people who would sort of say, well, we're teaching young people to have sex. And my response to that would be, they're going to do it anyway. So you might as well teach them really important points. Uh, But there was, there was no, I've had a lot of clients who thought that they could get pregnant at any time of the month. So one of my clients was saying she took the morning after pill so many times because she didn't realize that Mm -hmm. the window of fertility is actually not the whole month. You know, she's not a rabbit. Um, And yeah, in my own sort of sexual education, they didn't teach about how 20% of, of people who own a vagina, women, is that, you'll know this statistic probably more than I, that there's only about 20% that can climax through penetration alone. And the rest need external clitoral stimulation in order to reach orgasm. And I feel like that should be front and centre <laughs> in terms of teaching. 
Yeah, there's a lot of things that need to be front and center, isn't there? Um, but I, I have a little that when I hear that statistic, I get a little like eye twitch almost because the wording is just slightly unacceptable to me because it's not that with, with, with that stat and with the studies with that, it's not that women can't orgasm internally without clitoral penetration. It's just, I mean, because everyone can, everybody, everybody is capable of it. Um, especially with practice, it's a learnt skill. So like, there's a lot of factors that come into it, but everybody's um, body and brain and vagina can be basically taught and trained to have an internal orgasm without the clitoral stimulation. So the wording like can't, I feel is really limiting. And then women might be like, oh, well, why bother? Like I can't even, my body's not doing it anyway. And the women that can are better because, you know, it's just this kind of weird. But yeah, I think it just should say that 20% of women do or yeah, however many percent of women don't currently or their bodies don't currently rather than can't. Um, so, yeah, I totally know what easier. you mean. Find it yeah, easier. Find it easier. Be... Yeah, find it easier, yeah. Or, or sort of like yeah, most of the so... time, more commonly, they'll need da-da-da, yeah. Um, but I guess I'm just splitting hairs there. That's just my like sex coach nerd coming out um, because I'm, I think, you know, language around certain things is important because the stuff we get told really does – limit or expand our sort of idea of what's possible and what our potential is so um but I'm Completely. so with you there I'm, on the sex yeah. edge yeah but yes yeah, so I think so I mean to expand that out as well so one is that 80 80 percent roughly of women are going to find it easier <laughs> to climax <laughs> with direct clitoral stimulation but also just talking about the fact of uh, sex as a, as a pleasurable activity that you want to engage in as opposed to totally. this bit goes here and that bit goes there and just mm. touching because I think that then, of course, is a foray into discussions about consent. Uh, you know, I have a friend who lives in the US and one of um, he has a side project. He's actually in IT, but he has a side project about going into schools. And this was when did I hear about this? We were in Sweden so it would be like 12 years ago or something. Uh, and at that stage, he was going to schools and talking to young men about the idea of, because, you know, we have uh, issues with date rape and um, non-consensual sex. And he was just kind of floating the question with young men about, don't you want the person that you're with to really be into it? Because trust me, mm. the experience will be better. For you and for them, for everybody. Yeah. So I think Mm. at least having just like one module on pleasure and how it's better for everybody if everybody's having a good time. (laughs) Yeah. One module. That's all we ask. Honestly, it would make a huge, huge, huge difference. (laughs) And that's so cool that 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 guy was going and chatting with teenage boys about that because, yeah, I feel like that's so fucking obvious to me. But yeah, with like the porn culture and the lack of sex ed, I think sometimes sex isn't seen as this like mutually enjoyable thing so much as like a way for a guy to like get pleasure or take pleasure for himself. Um, Yeah. So that's a good conversation to start introducing young. Um, And just before we jump, I want to, I've got a couple of little questions about UTIs, but I just wanted, because you're mentioning um, self- medicating and I was thinking back to like all of the fucking stuff I used to try after doing some googling and being like oh I can't afford to go to a a professional so I'm just gonna like look it up and I 
I want to know what you think about some of those natural, sort of the classic natural remedies that you kind of commonly find online, like boric acids, one, those, you know, and then like chucking a clove of garlic up there or some yogurt because they fucking didn't work for me. And I got a garlic clove stuck up there one time that my darling um, friend had to fish out for me. Um, but yeah, what are your thoughts on those sort of natural remedies that crop up on all of the Google search results that probably a lot of women are actually trying? <laughs> <laughs> your life is an episode of Sex and the City. <laughs> that's fantastic. I love it. That that friend, she's a friend for life. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, a clove of garlic can be hugely uh, beneficial for symptomatic relief. 100%. Mm. It has to be peeled and not pierced. The minute yep. you pierce it, uh, you run the risk of burning the tissues, uh, mm-hmm. which are very delicate. So you want to be careful with that. Um, but it's in terms of, is it going to fix it? No. Can it stop the itching? Yes, it absolutely can. Um, so yogurt, uh, there's some very compelling research papers that showed that a yogurt and honey um, solution is the wrong word, concoction, let's just say. I've been talking mm-hmm. for a while now. Words are starting to fail <laughs> me. But um, a mixture, mixture, that's the word. Yeah. <laughs> mixture of yogurt and honey is actually provided as much relief and uh, when applied as a course of treatment was as effective in terms of time period as wow. over-the-counter counter antifungals. Yep. And Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so apple cider vinegar can be effective. Boric acid hugely effective we can't get it in australia very easily uh Mm. i think it's scheduled so but the reason why i say don't go trying it yourself is because of exactly what you just discussed that there's all this time spent you start to fall down google holes you do your head in you're trying everything and some women are so desperate for relief they put a garlic clove up there then they put some yogurt up there then they put some apple cider vinegar up there and so you've got all this reactivity going on because they're layering interventions uh, over each other, whereas it may be you need to, um, some women have tried an apple cider vinegar irrigation, for example, but they haven't got the concentration right. So they've burnt themselves and they're in a world mm. of world of discomfort. It could be mm. you need to apply them more frequently, less frequently, uh, mix different ones together. So yeah, they, they all, def- all the ones you listed definitely have their place. Um, mm-hmm. but again, it can also be sort of horses for courses. So women who yeah. have a lot of excoriation and a lot of reactivity and tissue sensitivity with a yeast infection, they're not going to do so well with apple cider vinegar. It's going to be too burny. Whereas someone mm. who's got a lot of the clumpy discharge and not so much of the tissue irritation, they might do really well with it. So they do work. <laughs> they do work. Uh, they just maybe need to apply, be applied differently. Yeah, great. That's really good advice because I I definitely have friends that swear by those remedies and they've worked for them. Um, And so, you know, there's obviously something to it. As you're saying, a lot of them are actually quite effective. But, yeah, the self self sort of application, self-medication can go wrong in so many (laughs) ways when you don't have guidance. Um, So, yeah, that's important to to note. And it's also just so nice to have someone on your side who's a, a real expert in that field and is, yeah, helping you form a game plan that you know is actually going to have a have a chance at at helping things rather than just throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks and in my case throwing things up my vagina and 
seeing <laughs> seeing how many of them I could get back out. No, and look, I want <laughs> I want to be clear. I'm not gatekeeping either because it can definitely sound like oh, you just want <laughs> you just want people to have to work with someone. It's that is absolutely not the case. But it's just mm. that um, that the information that's out there it can, as you said, you've had friends who've used it uh, and had success with it. So by all means, give something a try. But if it's not working then um, yeah. the guidance of someone who's been there and done that can really save you a lot of time and, and frustration. Yeah, yeah, beautiful, yeah. Um, I wish and it so- were as simple as if you have a yeast infection, <laughs> use apple cider vinegar. I wish it were that simple, but unfortunately, mm. as we were talking about, bodies are different. Mm, totally, yeah. I think it's like, you know, just a really mild case or a once-off, then sometimes things like that will work. But in my case, it was so much more chronic than that. And there was so many more underlying issues with my gut health and my stress levels and everything like that, that, yeah, nothing, nothing was going to cut it. Um, and luckily I didn't really struggle. I, I've only ever had one UTI, which is kind of crazy because often when you've got one of those things, then you start getting, you know, issues with all of them. Um, but I really didn't want to take antibiotics because of how much I'd struggled just trying to get my gut health back in order, um, you know, with all of the thrush and the BV. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to try and do it natural way, blah, blah, blah. And it eventually, um, it literally only took like a couple of days um, and it became like a kidney infection. I woke up with stabbing pains in my kidney at night and I was like, oh my God, holy fuck, give me the antibiotics because that can be really serious. And I'm wondering like, you know, in terms of treatment for UTIs, is it a similar deal? Like once you've got it, you just kind of have to take the the conventional um, treatment like antibiotics or something and then deal with the root issue so that, you know, as a preventative thing or are there natural ways that you can head one off without having to take antibiotics and then totally smash your gut bacteria? You know what I'm going to say, don't you? The very aggravating answer, which is it depends. <laughs> it depends on the individual. So some people yeah. some people wake up and they go for pee and they're like, fuck, and they just have to get to the GP mm-hmm. because within a matter of hours they're going to be pissing blood. Yeah. And then there are other people who their UTI presents is they just have to go and pee every half an hour. No pain, yeah. nothing, you know, but every half an hour they have to go to the toilet. So it really uh, can vary quite wildly. So my, you know, my personal journey was antibiotics or every time basically I had to. Yeah. And I did treat, I did a couple of times think that I'd dodged a bullet and, you know, used uh, for my situation, I used certain herbs, Chinese herbs and D-manos and thought that I'd, you know, managed to get on top of a couple and then, you know, a, a week or two later, boom, there it went. So and then I was, you know, by that stage I was exhausted, I was miserable, and I just wanted, yep. I just wanted it to be over. So, yep. um, you know, I went for the antibiotics. So it really does depend. Some people can, if they feel a twinge, and what I would, what I would say is common. It's not necessarily for everybody, but what is common is that someone who's had recurrent UTIs will have had lots and lots of antibiotics. And so, what you're doing is you're working with them to try and reestablish the um the balance in the urogenital environment and they may have a lapse right so they may go and they may need some antibiotics while you're working with them but then those lapses start to be further and further apart and mm. then they start to stop happening and then you you can eventually wean off i was i took dmanos every day twice a day for like 6 months or something and then i was able to wean myself off that supplement um you know after 
after I would have sex, there were certain preventative measures that I would take. I would, if it was ejaculatory sex, I would make sure I scooped out, you know, any um, semen. And then I would use a probiotic uh, intravaginally. And I was able to kind of wean off those things over time as the environment became more stable. And I think mine, looking back at the timeline, I think mine was menstrual cup usage. And so sadly, mm-hmm. I'm not one of the people that can that can use a menstrual cup. So um, yeah, once using the menstrual cup had disordered the environment and then I was able to remove that as the major contributor and then kind of had to get everything back in balance and then you can wean off those interventions. So these days, if I thought I felt something being out, I would pH test and I would, you know, start the interventions that that I knew worked for me. So you can head them off, but in terms of getting a UTI, some people are just going to be destined to wind up on antibiotics for that acute instance. Other people, one client I know would smash coconut water and, and manage to get rid of the symptoms. However, she would keep getting them. So then the argument is sort of, well, are you actually treating them or are you just causing the symptoms to settle down until a later date? Yeah. 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 Okay. Good answer. Good answer. It's never simple, is it? It's it always depends and everyone's everyone's different (laughs) um a really interesting um or cool little hot prevention tip that i have that's not diet related um that a lot of people don't know about is you know everyone hears about the whole like pee after you've had sex or scoop out the jizz is a good one um but even before you have sex it's really important that you make sure you're very 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 aroused and that your erectile tissue is all engorged because a big chunk of your erectile tissue is actually the G spot or the urethral sponge which means if it's puffed up with blood it actually sort of closes it it's hard to explain without like showing you with my hands but it sort of um turns into a big puffy sponge which then closes the urethra so bacteria can't climb up it (laughs) climb you know it can't sort of travel up and then turn into a uti when you're getting all that bacteria smushed up and around your bits when you're having sex so if you're having penetrative sex before you're aroused or even you know oral um and that g-spot or urethral sponge isn't engorged then it's easier for bacteria to travel up the urethra and then potentially turn into a UTI. So that's another little um, thing that I tell clients, just make make sure you are like super turned on and DTF. (laughs) Just when you didn't think there was any more reasons to DTF, there's another one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm really, I mean... We should, we should, shouldn't we? We should always be yeah. super aroused before we, well, yeah. there's that should word, but it it would be great if everybody could uh, slow down a little, yeah. I think, and take the time yeah. to get super aroused. And this mm-hmm. is what I love about your work is um, sharing that message that women, you know, so, hmm, I think I read a post of yours uh, that said that women can get aroused quickly, but it doesn't always happen that way. So if you need to take the time, mm-hmm. take the time. Yeah, yeah, totally. There's no quick fix. There's no simple solution that applies to everyone. But yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, I could wax lyrical on that topic for ages, but I am conscious of time because I just want to slot in another little segment before we wrap up called TMI. We love it. And I would, yeah, well, I would like to preface this segment just by saying that I, I don't really believe in TMI. I think it's really, 
it's a pretty unhelpful um, sort of um, attitude that we have that some things are just off limits and too much information to talk about. And yeah, there's going to be, you know, environments or occasions where maybe that story isn't appropriate or to a certain person. But in this context, I just want to get get this shit out there and talk about things that would usually be, you know, unfit for public consumption because they're considered to be TMI. Um, and I, and I want to normalize and sort of de-shame and de-stigmatize, um, those topics that people can sometimes be a little bit uncomfortable or squeamish or shy to talk about by asking my guests if they have a TMI story that they would like to share. Also totally optional. You don't have to, (laughs) um, but do you have a TMI story? Yeah, so I I don't have boundaries. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> it, no yeah, filter. it's not a thing. Um, so <laughs> but I was thinking because you did give me a heads up on this se- on this segment, and uh, I was thinking about what might be something that's valuable for people. And I thought I'll talk a little bit about sex after babies. So I've had mm. two children, and yes, and I do share with all of my. I work in uh, in clinic with women who are on their fertility journey. So a lot of the time I'm counseling people right up to before they have a baby, I'm counseling them about what, what they may expect. And again, everyone is different. However, sex after having a vaginal delivery can feel really, really different. Uh, so you're, you're learning the ins and outs of, I don't want to say a new body, but it's a new version, a new iteration of your body. And it doesn't mean that it's better or worse. It's just different. So give it time and uh, make sure you uh, approach it with an air of exploration. <clears throat> and after you have an orgasm, it's highly likely, if you're breastfeeding, that milk will spurt, uh, spurt from your nipples like a <laughs> fire hose. At least that's what happened <sighs> to me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so because the hormones are the same, right? And uh, that can happen. So make sure you have a towel or something handy or or not, but it's just, it's a thing. And along that same line that, you know, when you're doing the sex with someone and they suck on your nipples and it feels fantastic and you get all those like vagina tingles and everything, the same thing happens when you breastfeed an infant. So that can be weird. You know, you've got this Mm. beautiful little baby that you love and adore and it's purity and motherhood and it latches onto your nipple and suddenly your vagina starts twitching. So, but that's actually, you know, part of the mechanism of uh, the pelvic floor rehabilitation. There's a natural mechanism after childbirth and nipple stimulation is part of that, but it can be really confronting because you're like, hang on a minute. (laughs) That feels very, very similar to a completely Mm -hmm. different situation. And I think they're, you know, the breasts after a baby become this kind of gray area, like who do they belong to now? (laughs) <laughs> they, they are now a shared resource. They are still a sexual resource, but they are also a nurturing resource. And this is why, you know, I find it so funny that people want to separate motherhood and sexuality when you cannot. <laughs> oh my God. I love that you're talking about this and bringing that up specifically because it's so, oh, it's so confronting to a lot of people and and it's I'm even hesitant sometimes to talk about this sort of thing because yeah it is as soon as you mix the word sort of arousal or sexuality sexual energy with the concept of a child or a baby it's just like whoa 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 but I I love what you said like it is so 
yeah, motherhood, birth, pregnancy, sexuality, they're pretty intertwined and inseparable. And I think that's something a lot of women would be able to relate to. Like I had a client quite recently, it's so interesting that you mentioned this, but she was saying she didn't breastfeed because she sort of gave it a go and then it was so triggering and confronting to her because nipples and breast sort of stimulation had been so linked with arousal and sex for her that she actually couldn't handle, you know, because it, it feels nice. Um Sometimes when you breastfeed, yeah, she was like, whoa, freaked out by that. No, thank you. And she actually opted not to breastfeed her baby because of that, which is a real shame for that baby. And, you know, everyone's choice is their own. But I was a bit heartbroken by that. And I just thought, well, fuck, I mean, it sounds like a bonus to me. Like you're you're nourishing your baby. You're getting, you know, some nice sensations. Like I've had, um, this is like so... It's a oof, I'm I'm hesitant to even talk about this, but I used to work in childcare and kids would like sit on your lap and like whatever. And sometimes they just like touch you. Like they, you know, they're they're just affectionate, they touch you. And you know, you'd have like almost a little tingle here and there and be like, oh, whoa, what was that? And it's not because you're attracted to children, it's not because you're aroused at all. Like I'm not a pedo, and I can't believe I'm fucking talking about this on podcast, but I think it's valuable to talk about because our bodies sometimes feel nice and it doesn't mean that it's a sexual thing. It's just that, you know, and this is why children touch themselves all the time. They're touching their genitals because it's pleasurable and it's nice and it's totally innocent. And that's how I felt when, you know, you'd have you'd have kids come up and touch you or accidentally brush past in a certain way and your body would have this response. And it was so mild, but it, I, I wasn't fussed by it. I was like, well, I know that I'm not weirdly attracted to children. Like, I know that's not what's going on here. That's just my body and it's sensitive to certain touch and and I think that's totally innocent and pure and fine and I'm not seeking it out. But yeah, um, nerve, yeah. nerve endings nerve endings don't discriminate. <laughs> yeah. But I yeah, think totally. I, I agree with you about what you were saying about that that um, client of yours that everyone's choice is their own and absolutely yeah. absolutely no judgment on anybody for how they choose to nurture their child. But if that is your reason for not wanting to give a child access to breast milk, then I think that's been a failure of someone um, within that that person's care team to raise the subject and be like, just start, which is why, you know, which is why I think it's a, it was a good topic to talk about. But yes, I, mm. I do tell, I do tell all of my pregnant clients that it's, uh, it's entirely possible for them. And so far, a hundred percent of them have reported back that yes, it's a thing. <laughs> so it's not just, yeah. it's not yeah. just me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that, I think that the, um, the hormones are the same, you know, like the hormones that you get oxytocin, right? That's the bonding hormone. So mm. the hormone that bonds you to your lover is also the one that bonds you to your infant. So mm. we need to recognize that there is a blurred line with um, eroticism, you know, and, and feeling mm. and intimacy and where the, the direction that that takes. So does it move into sexual love or does it move into nurturing love, yeah. but that they kind of, they're, they're coming from the same source and yeah. it, it's, not to say, oh, don't be weirded out by it because it's fucking weird. But just start <laughs> contemplating in your mind how is that gonna how is that gonna feel? Totally. Yeah, I think it's so valuable. Cause it is yeah. I mean, for me, it would just trigger like a really maternal, nurturing, kind of loving um space. But you know, and I'm quite naturally nurturing maternal. But I totally feel 
how some people would be freaked out by that. And yeah, if we're just talking about it more then maybe they know to expect that and they know it's not a big deal and that it happens to other people and that they're, they're not, they're not, um, you know, a freak <laughs> because of it. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So just before we wrap up, I've just got, oh, I've got so many things I'd love to talk to you about. So we'll definitely have to do another epi. Um, I was wondering if there's any other kind of things that we didn't really um, cap off when it comes to vaginal health and your work, anything you might like to sort of give to listeners around that and and you know maybe even something I usually ask people before they go is there something that uh, clients come to you and they feel really broken or they feel like they're abnormal that you just want to go on the record and say like actually that's really normal and okay and and reassure them or give them a little yeah some parting words uh so vaginal health (laughs) is an area, as I, as we talked about, I sort of stumbled onto it because of my own journey. And then what I found was that these issues are so, 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 so common, so common, mm. but no one's talking about it. So mm. if you are experiencing recurrent UTIs or vaginal discharges, different odours, things just feeling NQR, you are not alone. It doesn't make you a dirty person. It's it's so, so common. It's so, so common. Uh, so don't be afraid to find someone to talk to about it. Um, and also to give, if anyone's listening and they're struggling with a recurrent uh, bacterial vaginosis or yeast infection and it's started to affect their confidence um, generally and also sexually, take, take heart because there's definitely a way through. You know, it may take some mm. time. Some people can get on top of it within a couple of months. Other people, it can be a 12-month journey, but you definitely can get on top of it and don't feel as though there's something wrong with you uh, because there's there's not. <laughs> so that would be the answer to that. And then you were asking as well if I wanted to mm. give people anything. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I would just say... I'll get you to link everything in the show notes because mm-hmm. my name is notoriously hard to spell, but people can check out my Instagram um, where I like to share information. I have been very quiet on there lately because I had to have, you and I were talking about this before, I actually had to have <laughs> sort of ear slash brain surgery. Um, and so I put a whole bunch of stuff on hold while I dealt with that. And I hope to become a little bit more active now, uh, although it's Christmas. So maybe I'll let everybody have their <laughs> Christmas and then I'll get active again in the new year, but please head on over, take a look, follow along. If it seems to be something that you find interesting and if people are listening and they happen to be in possession of female hormones, <laughs> then I have a free guide on my website, which is the 21 steps to pain-free periods. And mm. a lot of it is just hormone balancing information and hormones can drive some of these vaginal infections that we've been talking about or disordered hormones can drive some of the infections we've been talking about today. Mm. So that's actually a really good place for people to start if they just want to get some general sort of female hormone health advice. So again, I'll get mm. you just to drop my um, website in the show notes. Yeah, definitely can do. I'm going to download that that um, 21 steps as well. I mean, I just, 
I find it fascinating. I've kind of gotten on top of the period pain um, for myself personally. But yeah, I would love to also do an episode on that because it is a really common thing. But in the meantime, you guys should all download that free guide. And even if you don't have painful periods, but you know, like Joanne was saying, if you have um, these sort of uh, this issues with dysbiosis or vaginal infections, the hormone health will also have a really positive impact on that if you start working with. I mean, I think the 21 Steps has all sorts of quite beneficial, like not general, but stuff that will help not just the the pain, painful periods, but also pretty much everything to do with being a woman and having a vagina, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a good place to start. There's a lot of really really good general information, um, and some that might surprise people as well. So yeah, mm. fabulous. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with me today in the Lavia Lounge. I hope to have you back soon, Joanna. And yeah, see you later, everyone. Can't wait. Thanks so much for your time, Frey Frey. <laughs> and I look forward to when we <laughs> chat again. See you, Jojo. And that's it, darling hearts. Thank you for stopping by the Labia Lounge. Your bum groove in the couch will be right where you left it, just waiting for you to sink back in for some more double L action next time. And in the meantime, if you'd be a dear and subscribe, share this episode, or leave a review on iTunes, then you can pat yourself on the snatch because that, my dear, is a downright act of sex-positive feminist activism. And you'd be supporting my vision to educate, empower, demystify, and destigmatize with this here podcast. Also, I'm always open to feedback, topic ideas that you'd love to hear covered, or guest suggestions. So feel free to get in touch via my website at freyograph.com or say hey over on Insta. My handle is Freya underscore graph underscore YMT and I seriously hope you're following me on there because damn, we have fun. We have fun. Anyway, later labial legends. I'll see you next time.